This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have a, a new guest that he's not been on the podcast with me before. He's from a company called Policing Solutions. Scott Sargent is with me, and he's got a, a long, distinguished uh, background with uh, police policies. He was a handler for a while. Um, I'm going to let him kind of go over his uh, whole background. But if you uh, if you were looking for somebody who could really kind of come check out your unit and see what you're doing as far as best practices, see where you fall with it. Uh, this is the kind of guy you want to find. So I want to bring him on today just to kind of continue the theme I've done on several shows about, you know, let's take a look at our industry, take a look at ourselves as individual handlers, as units. What can we do for our unit? What can we do for our agency? And want to start throwing some really good solutions for you to hear from and maybe either contact them directly or at least apply some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight. So with that, uh, Scott, how are you tonight? Good. Thank you, Jeff. Can you go over your background with, uh, you know, for our listeners and stuff? Like I said, you not you haven't been on our show before, but uh, I know you have a, a very extensive background, and I'd love to share it with everybody. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, this is an amazing broadcast that, that uh, you guys do. The podcast makes a, makes a difference. I know that. I appreciate um, that. I've been a cop for about 34 years or so. Um, I started out in South Florida, moved out here in the 80s, uh, worked for few departments um i was a handler out in san bernardino county for uh, for a few years and had a, a cross-trained narcotic dog out there um went through actually i went through the um fbi academy out in san bernardino county sheriff's uh, academy went through with the dog it was kind of an interesting experience um did a lot of competitions and such in uh 1994 Three, I went to LAPD, been with LAPD for about 20, uh, just under 23 years, retired there uh, after 23 years, um, did a lot of stuff with LA, um, I retired at the rank of captain, I worked all over the department, um, spent about seven and a half years with their use of force review division, uh, which I helped kind of build up and uh, develop a lot of their, their uh, force review systems. Um, and uh, basically, we looked at categorical and non-categorical force, which was all the force. I, I, I ended up facilitating about 13,000 uses of force, I think, over the, the time I was there um, and was involved in, uh, in uh, writing a lot of policies and, and notices, uh, things like that, helped re- revise the canine policy. This was in their 2011 uh, revision. Um, okay. When I retired, I, uh, I did a lot of um, um consent decree work. I worked with the federal government with consent decrees. Um, I worked with a couple large departments on their monitoring team um, and have done a lot of expert work. I'm an attorney, been an attorney for about 20 years. Um, let's see. Um, and I have, I started a company called Policing Solutions where basically we, we uh, me and a small team, uh, will take a look at uh, unit practices or department uh, use of force practices or, or um, canine practices come in take a look at the entire canine unit the operation see what they're doing right see where they can maybe take advantage of some opportunities to change to avoid some some issues or concerns and we provide recommendations uh, for change and then any follow-up that uh, that the department requests that that we do and uh, I've done that with uh, with uh, a law firm we've done it for for a few different uh, agencies um and it results in some some pretty positive change um so i think that pretty much covers it. okay uh, are you still a practicing attorney or you do you do that type of work I am. too yeah i am i have an office i don't really practice law because it you know yeah kind of boring and not to the, <laughs> not to the point for a cop you know it's yeah. kind of a boring thing but yeah i i am active well the reason i ask is that because uh, I, I look at your website um you're a retired captain from la you've got you know your law degree and stuff so I, um, I don't think this policing solutions company is is uh, like a big money maker for you as opposed to I'm 
you know, I don't know you personally, but I think it's this is probably more about somebody like me that has invested, you know, a huge chunk of your adult life in this industry. And I think you're just trying to maybe help out some agencies. I mean, certainly they pay for the service, but I have a feeling that there's probably more, you know, what's your motivation in, in, in doing a lot of that type of work? Actually, that's uh, spot on. I really, um, the, the, the income for these, um, these internal assessments is not, is not a lot because as you know, especially over the past few years, uh, police departments don't have a lot of yeah. discretionary money to spend and, and that, that, that's okay. Um, but it provides an opportunity to go in and, and give back, you know, um, you know, I love policing. Um, I love everything about it. And I, I have a special place in my heart for canine and canine is one of those areas. Uh, I'll just touch on it where we're the industry, um, is kind of in a place of, uh, it's kind of in a precarious place. Um, and I don't know if canine handlers and uh, agency leadership is aware of how precarious it is. Um, I mean, and so anyway, that's kind of my motivation is to sure. try to help uh, some of the agencies basically save their units, uh, their canine units is probably the best way to put it. Sure. And I think it'd be worth, uh, I'm real familiar with, you know, LAPD, uh, you know, from being out there training with, with you guys, a fair amount and i've got a lot of friends there they're handlers and then uh you know we're talking and and uh, i've had gene ramirez teach for us several times so i've talked to mm -hmm. him and studied some of the case law history so I, I know that litigation and the you know just the crap you people that you your your agencies had to put up with you know in the early you know late 80s early 90s that really did kind of revolutionize how at least in a lot of Southern California areas, you guys had to change what you were doing. Um, so I guess you've been used to being in, in kind of an environment where you're under the microscope and you're constantly evolving in order to survive. Um, is that kind of a fair assessment? Yeah, actually, I, I really think it is. And I think, um, I honestly believe LAPD represents, um, in a lot of respects, best practices. Um, because they have changed as the um, as, as they've needed to change. So when the issues arose, probably Los Angeles and some of the other larger cities are first exposed to that kind of litigate litigation and you know media focus. Um, you know uh, entities like Marshall Project. You know you're aware yeah. of their organization um, where they will. Uh, lock an agency's heels and keep them accountable for for everything sure la has always been in the forefront of responding to that professionally and adjusting as they as they go so when the wave the tidal wave essentially comes they've already anticipated these issues and pretty much uh addressed it and so ch changes in policies and is a good example of that and changes in in training and you know how they operate and how they how they um basically manage and, and do administration and every, everything. So I think they are a best practice uh, agency, but there, there's a lot of departments out there that, sure. that do a great job. Um, you know, I got a call if, if I can uh, just run with that best practice idea. I just got a call from an agency and the agency leader said, something's on the horizon and we need to change because we're going to go ahead and get an inspector general and bring them in. And I said, what do you mean bring them in? And they said, we're going to bring them in to look at us and tell us what we need to do better to stay away, you know, stay, yeah. keep the plane from hitting the mountain. And I said, I think that's an amazing idea. When you're building, let's say you're building a house, the best way for you to build that house is not avoiding the zoning guy or the building inspector, yeah. but to invite them in and have them participate. Then you know when you're all done, you're going to have no problems. So kind of the same concept was... I'm going to go and help them and take a look and and see because they're not sure. They're like, hey, objectively, we need to take an objective sure. look at what's happening. But when the inspector general gets here, we want to be able to say we've done this and have a you know be starting off from a good place. So, so that's a good example. Yeah. So it's just kind of a preemptive uh, you know look at everything, which I think 
maybe I wouldn't. I don't really like the idea of saying you know, you're on the offense or on the defense, but you certainly wouldn't be in as much of a defensive position when you can show that you've been innovative and you're trying to to move along with the times because policing is changing dramatically. Amen. Amen. Um, I, and along those lines, um, if you don't take control of the change, someone else will. Yeah. Um, and I think the best best um, way to to reflect that is the consent decree. I mean, I was in a consent decree agency. I worked in the one of the consent decree oversight entities within LAPD during that period of time under Bratton and was involved in all that process and got to see it. But um, part of what I saw was, and I, as what I see with these agencies that I'm now part of the monitoring team, is that they just fight tooth and nail. And you really want to say, hey, you know what? For the most part, you know, they they repeatedly were like telling uh, these agencies to correct and these are issues and they just wouldn't do it. Yeah. They said, no, we know better. You know, we know what, what makes good police work and you don't. And then the federal court said, okay, well then we're going to, you know, put this thing on you and you're going to have to change. Yeah. And then it's not, you can't write your own policies. Now you have to run all the policies through like a central, you know, through the court. Yeah. So we want to avoid that agencies. A lot of small agencies have this kind of court oversight too. We don't, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to deal with that. And it's avoidable. It's completely avoidable in my mind. If we take the bull by the horns and make those changes internally. And just for, for clarification for agencies that maybe, you know, some of these handlers uh, that are listening, if they haven't had to deal with a consent decree, can you give me just one anecdote as to, you know, I've, I've been around it a little bit. Luckily my agency's never been part of one but I, I've worked with some agencies that have to live under that umbrella. Can you give me just an example of how convoluted, you know, a simple policy changes when you're in that environment? I, I will. Um, I'm dealing with one now um, where the uh, agency wants to implement a, a device. They want to use a new, this new tool, this new apprehension device. It's kind of like a new cutting edge tool. And I, I think it's great. They should. But in order to get the policy written to implement it, which is then going to be the basis for their training, they've gone through months of development of this policy. Now the policy has gone through from the agency to the Department of Justice. It's been revised numerous times through the Department of Justice. It's gone to us on the monitoring team for our input and our um, expertise and input. We then revise it they then take it and they have to respond to all the revisions and the edits, and then they have to send it back to the Department of Justice. Then Justice will send it back out to the department. Department will, oh, it goes back and yeah. forth and back and forth. Whereas if somehow the agencies had kind of avoided issues, you know, in the first place, they could write their own ticket. They can yeah. make their own policy, but you, you got to be proactive in this stuff. And I, yeah. You know, I see time and time again where, it, you know, it's like they could have prevented all this, you know. Yeah. I see cops, you know, cops get indicted. And it's like my first question is, wait a minute, it's not the cop's fault. I can tell you it's a case, in a canine case um, that I just looked at. Why did the cop get indicted? Well, he was using the dog in a certain particular way. Okay, what does the policy say? Yeah. Well, the policy doesn't address it. Well, there you go. Yeah. And the cop thought he was doing the right thing and he ends up getting arrested for it. And that's a good example of how policy can be extremely problematic if it's not, you know, um, you know, part of the solution is changing policy and addressing and making sure your policies are right. And on that policy note, um, I know that there's been, you know, in the, the time I've been a cop, there's been different kind of waves. I'm sure you've probably seen it too, where for a while um, the, the feeling that, was that policy should be maybe not as specific so they aren't nitpicked and then they were to the they should be super specific where are you at with those right now i mean how how detailed should especially when we're talking about using a dog to you know apprehend somebody how detailed should that policy be i'm glad you asked <laughs> <laughs> um here i'm gonna i'll lay out my philosophy and this is going the, my philosophy is based on trying to keep police departments um, out of trouble, keep the cops out of trouble. And I mean, like not getting in legal yeah. trouble or getting arrested, you know, um, minimize um, 
litigation and impact, civil impact and, and things of that, um, and keeping a unit thr thriving and viable. Um, because it's, I don't think it's difficult to do, but we, we kind of like sidestep this stuff. So I'll just go through a couple of things that I think could be part of a proactive change to policy. I also have a model policy that I'm willing to give to anyone who wants to look at it and pick and choose what parts they like and don't like. Okay. Um, the policies I've looked at, I can tell you, I mean, across the country, I have a library of policies I've looked at. They're all fairly similar. They're all, a lot of them are, co are created by these corporations that pump out these policies. Um, the same misspellings in one policy as in <laughs> yeah. another. They're cut and paste. Sure. Um, and then the problem with those, of course, if you want to change it, then they char charge you a fee to change that three sentences, yeah. et cetera. Et cetera. Um, so I think agencies should take care of their own policies in-house. That's that's what I think. I don't think it's difficult. I think uh, once you're in charge of your own policy, you can change it as needed. You don't have to send it back for revisions and get charged for it. Yeah. Um, but here's some of the things I think could uh, could be helpful. One is to to um, assess your philosophy in using the canine. For the most part, policy state, a dog can be used to apprehend and search for suspects and apprehend them, period. Um, okay, that's fine, but that means that they're both equal. In my mind, in order, in, again, in looking down the road at the sure. future, when we're, we're trying to pr uh, present ourselves in the best light, the pr primary philosophy of use of a dog should be as a search tool. If it's I'm talking about an operational dog, a patrol dog. Sure, yep. So number one, the dog should be used as a search device, a search, you know, search tool. Secondarily, or however you decide to write it, secondarily, the dog can be used to apprehend, consistent with this policy. So you're stating right in front in like, and a lot of these things as an attorney, I look at them as if everything is in front of a deposition and yeah. how it's in front of a jury. What's your philosophy for using the dog? It's to search and secondarily to apprehend. So searching and biting. No, no, I didn't say that. I said primarily it's used as a search tool, but there are times when the dog will be used as an apprehension tool or will be will bite as part of a, a search tactic, you know, as a search sure. operation. So that way you clarify what your philosophy is in the use of the dog. Um, the other thing, I'll just go through a couple of these things. Um, changing the policy to make sure it's consistent with what's a, what's a best practice nationwide, and there's a whole lot of different areas of that. But talking about the minimum versus, you know, large, longer policy, I've seen policies that were 30 pages. I, you know, that's ridiculous yeah. because, first of all, the more you write, the more that can be held up on yeah. a whiteboard in court and held against you. The more you in a policy, the more it can conflict. But you also don't want the old philosophy back when I was a handler was the shorter, the better. We had a one page policy. Yeah, uh -huh. See suspect, use dog. You know, <laughs> work for the same. Um, but, you know, you have to have some you have to have guidelines that tell the handler exactly what, you know, they is expected of them by the department and the community and what's acceptable and provide those guidelines. Now, I'll give you an example where that can has been problematic. Most most of the the policies I've looked at refer to the dog being deployed uh, part of the criteria for a serious crime. OK. So when I do now, the problem with these policies is there's no definition. So we don't nobody knows what a serious crime sure. is. In Oklahoma, it's going to be different from from Washington. Sure. So when I do these assessments and get a chance to talk to handlers, I ask them, "Tell me what a serious crime is," and they all tell me. Then I ask the leadership, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, the canine commander, "What do you consider a serious crime?" Guess what? It's, it's always different. More conservative, <laughs> off, off, most of the time, I would imagine. Yeah, there's no definition. Yeah. It's, it's not. There's no consistent uh, definition for serious crime. So if you're pulling your dog out and deploying them on a serious crime, that's great. But there should be a definition for what's a serious crime. You know, um, and there should be a consistent. If you can, if one officer can be disciplined for the same behavior for two different interpretations of one policy you have a problem with the policy not the cops but the pol the policy if it's not written properly um you can have a problem so it should be clear and easy to, to understand and and um, understand by the cops and you touched on earlier um the environment that i see across the country and you know it's worse in some places 
is there's a, a, a strong desire by some politicians, you know, and, and I would put, you know, some of the, the prosecutors as major politicians to really get a feather in their cap by charging some police officers with crimes. So these are things that, you know, that as a handler, you know, having a good, strong policy can maybe, and you mentioned earlier, can maybe keep you out of that quagmire of, of being a political pawn. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. When you, when, when I look at these cases where officers are indicted, um, the policies are, are just kind of all over the place. And half the time, or I mean, I'm kind of averaging, but I'm just during my assessment, this, whatever it is they were doing was not covered. It wasn't covered and it probably should have been covered. There should have been some way that activity was addressed or spoken to either in training uh, or in policy. Um, and I'll, I'll give, actually, I'll give you an example if I can. Sure. And this is, a, this is another hole in policy that, in my mind, is something that in the future might be problematic. So you have basically three general circumstances where a dog is going to bite. You have an accidental, you know, which could be a negligent or an accidental. Car get, dog gets yeah. out and bites you have a directed deployment, which is the guy flees or there's a fight and you put the dog on the guy, you know. And then the third one, which is the most likely, is where you're doing a search and the dog bites subsequent to a search. Okay, so I refer to those because they're not really, a lot of um, policies don't talk about the category of bite. Officers trying to articulate it sometimes have trouble. You say, well, what happened? Well, the dog found him and then he got bit. What do you mean he got bit? Well, he got bit. So what it is, is my mind, it should be classified. That was a contact bite. The likelihood is that when you deploy the dog on a search, if you have a find, and even if you have a find and bark, whatever, sure. find and bite, doesn't matter. Deploy the dog, he's going to make contact and he's going to bite. There's a good presumptive likelihood he's going to bite, which is perfectly okay. But policy should cover that. Now, here's where I foresee a problem in the future. Use of force policies are now going to eventually all contain um, concepts of um, proportionality and uh, de-escalation. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily part of it, but it is it is integral to a use of force policy sure. um, and necessity. So if let's say we're at a deposition and I ask the, the handler, OK, is a dog bite a use of force? All right. Well, nine out of ten times it is. L.A., it was not considered use of force until you know fairly recently but that's an anomaly so is it biting of a dog a dog biting suspect and use of force yes okay you deployed the dog put him in and he went upstairs went to the bedroom um went to the wherever it was and bit the guy how does that comport with your use of force policy which is a gram-based policy well it doesn't because i use the deployment criteria which is serious crime and blah 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 and i send them so that, in my mind, is a place where policies can be just adjusted to incorporate to or ensure that. And some policies have this in different verbiage, but some just have completely unrelated deployment criteria or mm -hmm. just a couple sentences in deploying a dog. And there's no accountability or accounting in the policy for the bite that may occur afterwards. So if a contact bite, the criteria incorporates the three primary provisions of the gram factors you know what's the seriousness of the crime what's the threat of uh the of the outstanding suspect in the in the community he's out there he presents a threat what is it and you know what's the seriousness of crime uh, oh and is he uh, attempting to escape or evade police you now have incorporated your gram-based use of force policy into your canine policy even though you're not making the decision to use force you're deploying a weapon that's going to ultimately likely use force sure. force will be the outcome. So you've covered it. So in a deposition, people are like dancing around this issue and he must've been kicking at the dog. You know, he's only trained to, I've read every can statement that, <laughs> you know, you know yeah. what I mean? Oh yeah. It's like, Oh, he, I think he was swinging at the dog and he's fighting him. And, well, that's not the answer. The answer is I deployed the dog knowing he's probably going to bite the guy and he bit the guy. And then I arrested him. And before you know, I deployed him, I made sure it matched my policy amen, for amen. canine and for use of force, which should yep. be, should mirror each other. Because I've seen the same thing in doing reviews where I've found a few times where 
the canine policy and the use force policy actually conflict. They have different yes. definitions and it's like, there's a real problem here, you know, cause yeah. you're doing the same thing and, and one of these policies isn't going to hold up. So that's right. And you may have a, um, contact bite where I have subsequent to a search, he kills somebody. He, I, I mean, I've had, I've had bites where the guy was severely injured. You have two. We've, you know, I have had sure. one where the brachialardi was severed and he almost didn't wake up. Yeah. And you know, you have to explain, you have to not back then, you know, you, know, you didn't, but now, you know, you have to explain it. Yeah. You know, and you, and you mentioned proportionality. Uh, I know one of the things that, um, you know, I see in training, um, a lot of times is I, I do a lot of different training. We talk a lot about, you know, getting to have a good verbal recall off the dog and stuff. Where are you seeing stuff about for duration of the bite and those types of things? Exactly. So there, I think there's uh, three or four issues of the day. If um, might be a good way to, to sure to, to call them in. I can go through what I have seen by doing these reviews and assessments and through consent decree work. Um, I can what one of the some of the issues that I think might foreseeably be problematic for agencies. Um, and probably in order of how much of a problem it might be is duration of bite. Because essentially we put, as a general rule, we put the dog on and we remove him when we, when we get up there, when we're satisfied, the guy is controlled and we pull him off and we handcuff the guy. Well, now we're going to see an increase in proportionality uh, requirements and policies. So, if the guy is on his knees screaming, okay, 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 get the dog off repeatedly for a minute while you slowly make your way up the driveway, um, that's potentially a problem. Not, not always, not always, but it can be problematic when the person is not resisting and it can be argued that the proportion of this continued dog bite while the person is surrendering, uh, you might you might end up with a problem especially if it goes on if it's I've, i mean i've seen litigation over a five second ten second bite but i've seen cases that were not litigated where it was a three minutes yeah. of bite and it was like i don't know why and and sergeants were standing there um all the cops were standing sitting around and it just went on and on it's like what are they waiting for <laughs> And the guy ended up with, with you know, nerve damage, not reasonably. It was a yeah. mouth, so he ended up with an alligator arm, and, you know, he couldn't, you know, yeah. end up with multiple surgeries. And everyone thought it was fine. And I said, okay, uh, culturally, I get it. But, you know, in the future, you know, if CNN gets that and people, the Marshall Project, and suddenly mm -hmm. that becomes a focus, someone may get in some serious trouble. And in a lot of these cases, the chief doesn't know what to do. So they just get rid of the canine unit. Yeah. I've seen it. They just say, well, what happened? And the canine unit, canine uh, people are trying to explain it. This is what happened and his hands and safety and, you know, rebite fear. And, and the, the, you know, litigation is like, no, no, look yeah. at the video. And the chief says, I'm done. This is the fourth in a row. Just pull the dogs or whatever. And you know, when, when the chiefs matter. do that, those are usually departments that haven't taken the time one of the things I like about doing policy review is it makes that chief put his name on a policy and he's familiar with it. So then when this stuff happens, it's something that's more fresh in his mind, not something maybe an inherited policy that he never really paid any attention to. So at least it gets some, some type of, uh, you know, buy-in from the senior leadership. So when they happen, it seems like maybe it's not his knee jerk reaction of just get rid of canine. Yeah, I, I agree because they have a vested interest because they know the policy and signed off on it. I, I completely agree with that. And on that um, duration of the bite, just real quickly, uh, I, one of the things I, I like to kind of when I'm talking about that, because, you know, I, I've seen and I'm sure you have too. you get pushback from that. Well, no, I'm not going to take the dog off until he's handcuffed or something. But I think when you just look at, like, say, something as simple as a taser policy, can I stand there and just keep pulling the trigger on the taser over Absolutely. and over and over? while you slowly walk up and handcuff the guy, of course that's I right. can't. And that's right. And people, I think some handlers don't really want to equate the two, but they're both uses of force. They both have to be, you know, proportionality and, and reasonable and everything, all the buzzwords that are going to come back and bite you. 
those all come into play right now. That's right. That's right. And the units that take the, this uh, seriously now and start changing that direction, even if it's incrementally, are the ones that are going to survive and thrive. Those that don't, um, those that say, ah, we're going to do what we want to do. I've heard handlers. I don't care what anyone says. We know what we're doing. We're the experts, and we're going to use our dogs the way we see fit. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, there might not be any future in that. And oftentimes that's a handler speaking, and the supervision or leadership has no knowledge about it. It's kind of an informal sure. decision. Uh, we're going to, I run the unit, I've been here for 10 years, and this is the way it's going to be. It's like, well, you're putting a lot of people in jeopardy if you're refusing yeah. to change with the times, if it were. You know? Yeah, and it's that handler is going to make the decision that's going to drive the bus to have the chief say no more canine unit from Even, a deployment yeah. that he saw. So Yeah, it does happen. Um, some of the calls we get are from new chiefs that come in, and they look, and they say, where can I make changes, you know, as a beginning in order to, to reduce sure. liability and make myself look good. And part of it is to either herd the dogs, you know, neuter them essentially, or um, get rid of the program. Yeah. Two are out. Like I had one, I, I saw one where I think one was out on uh, surgery. One handler was sick, uh, long-term sick. So you had two, you had two dogs. You had one that was about to retire and then you had one active dog and they said, we're not going to replace any of them. Yeah. So good luck with your one dog. And that was just not really necessary. It yeah. was just, uh, it was preventable. Okay. I think I um, interrupted you a little bit. So you were, you have your, your list, your duration. Of, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, a couple other things I think um, along those lines, um, which is one of probably the most, um, one that causes the most controversy is a discussion. That's why I just call it a discussion of call off versus uh, tactical out, hard out. So um, this is, you know, your decision whether you're, you will or yeah. are willing to call the dog off of a bite uh, or are you in all cases going to, you know, walk up and take him and remove the dog? Well, we all know that the way it generally falls is that the cops are on top of the guy and the, the, the dog's removed. But is that the way? But let me let me ask this question. How do you certify? Do you certify to always um, have the dog removed from a training bite in the same that that way, or do you ever call the dog off in training? Well, of course, we call the dog yeah. in training. The dog is not dog smart. Dog knows sleeve. I call off when I hear the words out when I come back to my to my, my partner. But in court, if you were to, you were asked, what do you train? Oh, I train call off. And how often does he call off? He calls off every time. Okay. And when was the last time you called off in the field? Well, I don't. Why? Well, it's dangerous and there's a rebite risk and all this other other thing. Have you ever even tried? No. Why? We don't do it. Okay, so then the question ultimately is, well, why don't you ever do it? Wouldn't it be safer to be able to be able to, under some circumstances, call the dog off with a verbal uh, recall um, instead of in all cases, every case, relying on, you know, tactical out where you have to go hands sure. on and remove the dog, you know, end up with a bite bar and all that stuff. Yep. Um, so even if you were to, to um, I don't know how many agencies uh, use or like e-collar or even, uh, you know, some, when I was, when I was a handler, we weren't allowed to use them. Um, it was all based on the bond between us and the <laughs> dog, but you know how far that goes. Yeah. Luckily, most agencies now are utilizing them and utilizing them, I think, correctly. So, yeah, and there you go. So wh then what's the excuse where the dog is on the guy and he's yelling, okay, okay, I give up, and he's on his knees, and you're slowly making your way up the driveway. So will your dog call off? Well, he will in training. Okay, do you have an e-collar? Yeah. Okay, then you can pr probably be you're probably able to recall the dog, and therefore you mitigate the, pro the proportionality, right? He's not sure. resisting anymore. And you can take your time because the guy's not going anywhere and you can always resend the dog, but um, it, it might be something for people to talk about. Um, and again, this is the one that well, we're not, we're not changing our ways. It's okay. I, that's fine. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree with you on that because I, I teach a lot of e-collar classes and part of the class is showing that you now have that ability to call the dog off. And it, it I find it amazing how, um, uh, 
much people will dig in their heels about never will I do that. And then I explained to them, there's a lot of agencies that deal with some, you know, LA would be one of them that deals with a lot of, lot of deployments, a lot of apprehensions and a lot of real dangerous situations. And most of the time they call the dog off and it works really well. So I think it's one of those, um, I, I can't really explain it, but I know a lot of people, I agree with you. They, they, uh, gets a lot of passion going when you talk about that. It does. It really does. Probably more than, more than anything else. Um, on my website, there's a video from a Newton, um, I think it was a homicide suspect where they tracked the guy down and sent the dog. And, um, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, uh, call off the guys under, under a furniture in the backyard, the dog gets them and they set up go over there, you do this, we're doing that, you beanbag, whatever, less lethal, okay, out, back, and they call him back, the dog comes right off the bite, the guy gets on his knees and goes, okay, okay, and the bite was probably one, two, three, four, six seconds, and it was really very beautiful to watch, because yeah. it just showed, it really wasn't necessary, to, no, it's a homicide suspect, so they're going to take their time getting up to him, so yeah. it just wasn't necessary to leave the dog on through that whole time. So, well, I watched that video, and what it also shows is, um, like, I had Goosby on here. Mike Goosby was on on our podcast one time talking about this very subject. And if you, for the, I'll put the link to your website for people to, to check it out. But if they watch the video, the other thing is it shows a, a high degree of professionalism and training that is it's hard to hard to fight with that, you know. And then again, when you go back to the people who who donate money to canine units and they love the dogs and all that when they see something like that then they're proud that they're part of that when they see the the guy flopping around saying i give up i give up and the handler can't lift the dog off him then they they start to you know maybe not want to support us as much right right and that's the case with smaller agencies we all rely on i mean we did we relied on the friends uh, entity to buy us a dog and train and everything um but yeah you're right and um, which actually is a good point to talk about body cameras. Um, handlers do not, and to correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> handlers don't like the camera. Um, they don't like it. I they think, don't like it. I, you know, from I travel a lot and I teach a lot of classes, I it seems like overall the cameras for, you know, all of policing, it seems like a lot of the just cops in general are now starting to really get used to them and like them. But I would agree that handlers a lot of times don't, and I think it's because of of that, um, just the way it looks on camera. Right. Uh, in my in my estimation, the way to do it is go get cameras. If your agency does not have cameras, be the agency that steps up and gets cameras. Why? Because your policy and your training should shine. You sh- no handler should ever be. Um, afraid of what is going to come out on a ca- on the on the video, um, it just shouldn't because eventually you're all going to have everyone's going to have cameras anyway. You're all going to have body cameras, and I, I don't the, the dog ones are kind of cool to watch, but I mean handlers are eventually going to going to have them, and if they don't have them, then the officers aren't seeing yeah. the search is going to have them. Yeah. So your stuff's going to be on video anyway, um, but there's no reason why handlers should not be. Um, proud of what they do. I mean, and willing to show it and talk about it. But like, as the example we talked about with uh, contact bite, where you're explaining how the gram factors factor into when you're sending the dog and the guy gets bit, you walk up and it's someone who maybe shouldn't get bit, but you can then on the camera, you're explaining the nuances. It's like an officer while shooting. You can explain everything you do. Handling, same thing. I have an amazing dog. He's well-trained. This is exactly what happened that night, and here's the policy, and this is how it comports with the use of force policy, and this is what I did and why I did it. Um, and I think eventually handlers just have to kind of embrace it. So um, I worked for an agency that progressively went out long, many years ago, and got cameras, um, and I think it was a, a smart move. It's like inviting the OIG in yeah. or the, the building inspector. It's, you know you're kind of leading the way and change and showing that, that you really got this thing. You've really got it. You know, you don't have to worry about uh, people criticizing you. Yeah. And it shows your story and your, your point of view. And again, I think if you're, if your policies are good and you're training, right. Um, I, I think a lot of the videos, you know, you can find good and bad videos, but 
I think a lot of them show an amazing amount of professionalism and it shows the amount of work that handlers put into a dog and people, you know, when they look at it in that light, if you did happen to end up sitting in a federal jury, then they're going to see, you know, that, that there's a well-trained dog that did everything I asked him to do, you know, and uh, I just think it can be a very positive thing if you're doing, if you're doing everything, you know, right and the best of your abilities. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think it uh, it allows it allows uh, the, the coppers to shine in what they're doing. And I've seen I, I spent a lot of time looking at body camera footage. Um, and when I start doing consent decree work with some of these agencies, these departments did not want to be on the video. They would do everything they could to shut it off or to yeah. drop it or whatever. But in the end, years later, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, years later, these guys are doing amazing police work. Some of them yeah. are like really shining and they are, they are kind of being more, a little bit more contained because of the camera and professional, but you, it shows, I mean, it's just a, a, a lot different from when, when they started out. So um, yeah, cops should never have to be uh, worried about what's on camera. They should, they should for the most part be, be proud of what, what's going on, you know? Yeah. And really all of these things that we're talking about, and I, you, you and I started being cops around like around the same time. And I know when I started, there was guys on our agency that had came out in the 60s. And they told me, you know, the world is, is going to end. And you're, you, you're crazy <laughs> to be a cop right now. And, you know, the, the, it's, and right. all the stuff that you hear guys that from our generation now telling young cops, this, this profession changes. And it, it's still a very valuable profession. It changes a lot. Um, and it's what society wants and what your, your area wants and your politicians want and all that. But there's ways to be smart about, you know, living with these changes. And I think that's a lot of what you're just maybe trying to help agencies understand that, you know, we can still be very, very effective in what we do and still uh, enjoy our job, which is, I think, important too, but not, not be on the wrong side of some of these, uh, you know, political decisions. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, a couple of the points. Can I talk yeah, about please. writing? Please. So uh, just a couple of things. I was just going through this paper that I have in front of me. I just want to um, couple of these things. One, yeah, the, the camera, the body camera thing, I think is an important thing that for agencies to, to kind of hash out. Um, report writing. You've reviewed a lot of reports probably, right? Sure. A lot of different yes. kinds of reports. Yeah. <laughs> How how many times have you read he was fighting my dog? Just those words. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stop fighting my dog. Yeah. I'm not fighting your dog. I'm, you know. I'm um, scared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in pain. The, the canned language uh, has caused a lot of folks um, problems, and uh, the language the language used when on video the person saying okay okay I give up, and in your report you're saying you know or on video you're yelling Stop fighting my dog or. You know, it's like the same uh, sentence in every report. So that canned stuff is when the Department of Justice looks at stuff. um, One of the things that they one of the triggers they look for is this kind of uh, canned language. I mean, we've all heard the term, but realistically, it can be very problematic if the facts uh, don't comport with the evidence. If it will, you know, if you're saying one thing and it actually is something different. So uh, the, the language of what's happening. But again. If you've got a good policy, you just need to articulate how, you know, your actions comport with the policy and you're, you're okay. You don't have to try to fill in blanks, which a yeah. lot of these guys feel like they need to do sometime. That's a good um, point. Now what else was I going to, um, leadership. Oh, um, if, a, if an organization is going to have a, a sergeant, a, a canine supervisor, it is best for that supervisor to only be the canine supervisor. And of course it's best for them to be experienced and, you know, trained in canine um, and only work with the canine unit, um, like in large agencies, but in most agencies, it's not like that. Of course you have collateral duties, you have all kinds of stuff. But in those cases, in order to mitigate the liability involved in the, 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 the nuanced policing that canines do, it's best for that supervisor to at least get canine, you know, uh, handler tra- training, you know, canine 
supervisor training yeah. like a lot of agencies do. Adler Horse has a great program yeah. for that. Um, and have uh, liability training, canine liability training, um, and then have that canine as a priority. So if the agency, you know, um, puts you in there and you've got, you know, traffic and you've got, you know, again, I talked to an agency recently, the guy, this poor guy, and it's a big department. And he yeah. goes, oh, I'm the sergeant. I go, well, what do you, was this your thing? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I got SWAT. I got air support. I got admin. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's watching the canine stuff? Oh, I make it out to practice. So, you know, that's great for this poor, you know, sergeant to have to run around and do all this stuff. And he's got the motivation, but it's not fair. And it's not, you know, fair to the cops to show, to show them. Look, traffic has one sergeant. Yeah. You have a sergeant who's shared by five other units. It, it shows kind of a redheaded stepchild, you know, philosophy of the department. If you're not giving them their own supervisor, giving them the right person and things like that. So supervision is important. The informal leadership that can develop with no sergeant or with a weak sergeant can be as bad as not having a sergeant at all. And I'm sure, you know, you've seen that in your, sure. your, your, that sure. back row, um, leadership yep. when the sergeant doesn't show up can be uh, problematic and create cultural issues and you know we don't do it that way we do it this way and you know um, and, uh, just to be the devil's advocate though i've seen the the other side of that too where you see some amazing handlers that are 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 you know doing the right things and and stepping up uh and doing you know stuff way up above their pay grade and and really kind of carrying the unit in a positive thing so it's so I mean, it's an opportunity if, if you're listening to this, if you have a sergeant who, you know, for whatever reason isn't involved, you know, by stepping up a little bit doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's not necessarily a negative thing is what I'm saying if you do it right. Right. And the other thing is these guys should be recognized for that. Sure. So if you have a sergeant who's doing five other things, a lead handler should be an official uh, recognized, uh, whether it's a position or just that this person is considered the lead handler. Yeah. That would be that that's a great way um, to, you know, resolve a lot of stuff in the department. They can they can take care of training. They can do all that day to day stuff and they can pretty much be the lead for the for the unit. And the sergeant doesn't have to be there all the time. So that's another great way to do that. Sure. And do it formally. Um, trainer. I think that's um, post bite assessment. I, I think uh, every agency should have post bite assessment where once there's a bite there's an opportunity for supervision or the lead handler to kind of take a look at it, uh, debrief it. Um, any issues should not be covered up. I've seen more issues just not acknowledged. Um, and the dog just went back to work yeah. after doing stuff that you and I would probably look at and say, Oh no, no, no. Yeah. That needs a little bit more of an assessment. Um, so that assessment, that follow-up assessment and um, debriefing process um, is really important for for canine. It addresses issues and shows that you're paying attention and documenting things. Um, and then the dog goes back to if there's a problem, you know, you fix it and you put him back to work. But, and um, that 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 negative thing can then turn into a positive when you look when you're doing someone like you comes in and does a whole um, evaluation because if every record says all of our dogs are perfect, then you go out there and watch them in the field and some of the dogs are having a hard time releasing or whatever then you start thinking, all right, there's something that isn't here. But when you see maybe maybe a body camera video shows a dog isn't releasing on the first command and they have to use an e-collar correction or something, and then you see on the training records that we started working release more with this dog and we did prone releases. and So you can take that. I think sometimes people are worried about having anything that's negative in their the official record thinking that it's going to come back and haunt them. But I think a lot of times that can become a positive because it just shows how how you're addressing all the things you just talked about. It does. It does. Because if you go to court and you show your, your training records, they're all going to show your training records. But if you show that you've never never identified any issues and uh, in your canine unit ever, um, then and then all of a sudden you have this major incident that occurs and it turns out that this is kind of a repeated issue with this dog and you get, yeah. it shows that you, you have not been paying attention to it. So yeah, you want to make sure you're paying attention to the issues and addressing them. And um, it leads to best practices for everybody and, you know, improved performance for the unit and the handler and everybody. And on post bite, 
stuff just to touch on real quickly. I've seen um, even recently, I've seen a few agencies who they have the handler who deployed the dog do the on-site, you know, uh, interview of the suspect. I see it a lot. And can you just kind of address how you feel about that kind of stuff? <clears throat> yes, it, you need to have an objective investigation of any bite. I mean, you need to have, however the policy um, establishes it, if it's the canine supervisor um, or his designee, it's in my mind the best way to put it. And if the designee is the field sergeant who responds, that's fine, but it should be a, an objective um, investigation conducted, you know, consistent with the department's policies on investigating a use of force. So you have, you know, whether it's, a, even if it's accidental or whatever, yeah. um, the handler shouldn't be conducting his own, his own interviews. It's not to say, of course we agree. It's not going to say, say that it's not, it's going to be problematic, yeah. but the perception and, you know, as a pra general practice, it's not a great idea. Um, I, I was, I, I was, uh, what was the last thing I just saw where the cop was involved in a thing and then he had to investigate his own officer ball shooting or his oh, wow. partner came up and had to interview the people and, you know, and no, there was no separation yeah. and there was no, it just was a mess. And it's like, what is the policy you talk about? You know, yeah. the policy was a little bit more specific what they should do, but yeah, it wasn't, it was very vague. So yeah. because of that vagueness of the policy, they just kind of handle it, you know? Yeah. And I just think that having something like that, like I said, uh, you said that you know, not, not necessarily the the handler is going to do something wrong or whatever, but it just it it just looks a lot cleaner if you call a street sergeant in, if you're if you're a smaller agency, or call the canine sergeant in, even if he has to get called in from home or something, and have him do the investigation. It just shows a level of professionalism that that uh, maybe takes some of that scrutiny out of it. Right. Right. Exactly. An objective uh, assessment is the best sure. way to go. Sure. Okay. Uh, what else for me? Well, I think we've actually covered quite a bit, and I try to keep these around, uh, you know, 40, 40 minutes or so. So we've gone over a little bit, but I think it's been really valuable information. We've talked about policy and a lot of, uh, you know, maybe buzzwords that are going on right now. I guess, um, can you just take a minute to kind of sum up if somebody's listening to this uh, and maybe they work for, say, a smaller agency and they, they you know, maybe don't have the opportunity to bring, you know, like a company like yours or somebody in to do it. What would you what would you suggest? Like probably just doing a policy review with their chief and, and maybe start going from there and, you know, attending some training seminars where they can see some of the control work, some of the stuff you can do and just kind of maybe open up your uh, your horizons a little bit to see what's going on in the big picture just just to avoid um, you know having having somebody come in and dictate policy yeah uh, yeah absolutely um, I, I think let me give you some resources uh, the the USPCA has a, has a lot of resources sure. too I, I'm on one of their, their editorial boards we get together and chat uh, on Mondays about policy and such um, they've got a lot of different um, uh, things and on my website, I've got something. I've got some articles that I've written that kind of take you through point by point some of the issues to look at. But what there there's a there's a um, a profile called a SWOT um, uh, format, which is a way that agencies or leaders should look at their entities to determine their uh, the S is strength, W's weaknesses, opportunities, and T is threats. And they take a look at what's working, where the threats are, how to take advantage of opportunities to change, um, tighten things up, make things better. And one way to do it is just pull people together and say, look, people are getting in, people are going to jail. Let's boil it down to what's important to the cops. People are going to jail and cops are losing their houses. Yeah. If you think it's not happening, it absolutely is because cops that act outside of policy these smaller agencies will not hesitate to show them acting outside course and scope of duty. And if they're fine that your actions were so egregious, they're outside of the course and scope of your duty. You can have an extremely problematic, you know, sure. um, credit report in the future. Sure. So it is, it is important for people to take a look at what the threats are that they face, what's happening in the next 10 years. And one way is 
start showing people these Marshall report, these Marshall project reports, because um, these, this is just an organization that represents one of many who believes that biting dogs should no longer exist. Um, I know a couple of uh, um, very high level academics who are um, focused on that objective that biting dogs should no longer exist. Yeah. And our, our mission, their kind of collective mission is to do whatever is necessary to try to, you know, end the practice of dogs biting humans in police work. So on the other hand, um, this is a, we're, this, it's an industry that's been around for a long time and it's invaluable. It's the canines are invaluable to what we do and to community safety. So what's in the middle? How do we make sure that we don't get that cross here? And one is to just sit down and look at what you're doing, how you're doing it, and if it's if it if there is a better way um, to do it better. So if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'll send them my policy, and I've got a bunch of a few articles that are out on. Um, I think they're on actually on the USPCA site. There, I think they're on my site. Um, lesson a lot of it is lessons learned. One of them is ones on uh, Graham reforms and how I think Graham is going to change to include proportionality and necessity and how that's going to work into uh, future policies. Um, but if you just change you try to focus on um, accomplishing best practices within your agency, starting with what's your mission, what's your focus. So we talked about, is it search number one and apprehension number two, if that's it, that can be part of your policy. Sure. Where the mission of this organization's canine unit is to search for suspects uh, or our evidence and to apprehend when appropriate, consistent with our policies. Um, and then go from there and then go into your criteria for deployment. When do we deploy? Um, how do we deploy? Um, under what circumstances do we, uh, what, what do we do when there is a bite? How do we define these things? I think policies should have definitions so there's nothing unclear. And if you pass it around the room and two people in the room don't understand it, it needs to be, you know, resolved, yeah. you know, addressed. Um, and training should should mirror that. Uh, you're going to have now. I, I, there's a whole issue with 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 training. Uh, you know, who who is your chief trainer? Um, does that chief trainer train for five agencies? Does that chief trainer also address tactics and actual policing? Um, so you mentioned Mike Goosby, who's just an, an amazing a leader in, in canine. Um, and one of his philosophies is that you've got to incorporate tactics Absolutely. and police work with canine handling. Yep. It's not just, you know, you go to some of these uh, contract trainers, take dog out of car, run problem one through three, and then go home. That's yeah. your training night. Um, but what about when there's three guys in the car? What about when you have to deal with an you know, outstanding suspect or the, how yeah. do you room clear instead of just telling us to clear it? And, we, and I asked one of these trainers, I said, well, how do you differentiate these five agencies? Oh, we don't. We, we tell them to use whatever they think is best and they go in and send the dog or do it, you know, yeah. door by door. So the training should be kind of, it should work as a police training, right? Sure. I mean, I'm sure everyone mostly agrees with that, but there are so many holes in canine training where handlers just do i've seen one unit where four handlers had four different approaches to car stops mm -hmm. it's like oh, well yeah. that's not wait a minute yeah. what yeah well when we go to you know regional training everyone has a different approach it's like okay well that's like having a different approach to officer involved shootings or the building yeah. searches you really shouldn't you should yeah. try to be uniform and consistent and that's where having a chief trainer or lead trainer mm -hmm. um that really accomplishes the admission set by the organization comes into play. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So there's a lot of agencies like um, uh, Mike Goosby has, has, has a, has a group and a, there's quite a few others where they incorporate it all together. It's all one, one package of, of, uh, yeah. of training. Yeah. So training is important to look at um, policy, administration, leadership. Those are all things to look at, but I'm available for, for anyone to talk to bounce ideas off of, um, I won't charge people to have a conversation. Of course, I, I'm, I consider it giving back, um, you know. Sure. Um, and there's some stuff on my website, and there's a lot of other organizations. USPCA is another yeah. great resource, like I said. So.
Yeah. So I'll put that and I'll put your, uh, your I'll put the website, uh, your website in the show notes so that people can reach out to you. And, uh, you know, I appreciate all the information. I, I have a good feeling. I get a lot of feedback on this uh, podcast. People email me questions. So I have a pretty good feeling. I'll, I'll take a lot of these questions and uh, keep them together. And if it's good with you, maybe in a month or two, I'll bring you back on. We'll do some follow-up uh, questions and uh, kind of go over some of these things that people are asking. Maybe go into a little more detail if, if you'd be interested in that. Absolutely. Anytime. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate your time, Scott. And it was a, been, okay, a, been a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for listening to this edition of Hits Canine Radio. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. I think we covered over a lot of really important information. It's just a good time of year to maybe look at all your policies and do a little reflection, you know, based on the current events that are going on in our profession, just to see what you can do to maybe insulate yourself from some of these uh, baseless attacks, keep your unit good and healthy and going strong for years to come. Uh, as always, I like to remind everybody that we're going to be doing hits in uh, Scottsdale slash Phoenix, same uh, area, in August of 2023. Uh, we'll have a lot of classes like this, dealing with stuff like this. We have legal stuff, training stuff. It's a great time. So hits canine.net for all that information. If you want to reach out to me or to Scott for uh, any more information about what we talk to, just shoot me an email, jeff at hits canine.net. I'll forward on over everything, questions and whatever. I'll talk to Scott. As I mentioned, we'll probably do a follow-up uh, uh, deal with this because I'm sure we could probably get a lot of questions. So Jeff at hitsk9.net for anything related to the podcast that you want to contact me on. I value all your feedback and I appreciate everybody listening. Thanks and be safe. <laughs>